0: Welcome to Inside the Bible. I am Father Kenneth Baker, editor of the Homiletic and Pastor Review. And in this last segment of our series on the Bible, of brief introductions to each book of the Bible, 73 books, we're going to take up the last books of the Bible, beginning with the second letter of St. Paul to, uh, excuse me, second letter of uh, St. Peter, uh, which is written to the whole church. Uh, This uh, letter was probably written around the year 68, something like that, 67, Uh, before the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, St. Peter says in this letter, in his theme, that he speaks about the certainty of the second coming of Christ. There have been some of the heretics who had denied that Christ is going to come again, or they said he'd already come. And Peter uh, uh, refutes that, and uh, he asserts the certainty of the second coming of Christ, but nobody knows when Christ is going to come again. And also, there's a refutation in this letter of false teachers, very similar to other letters that we've seen uh, from St. Paul about the problem of false teachers. Now, this letter, just like the letter of James, it gives the appearance of being a letter, but it looks uh, and reads more like a homily or an exhortation. He emphasizes that one should strive for virtue, and he assures them of the truth of the second coming of Christ. He warns them about the Antichrist, just as St. John warns the people about the Antichrist. That's a thing that he's concerned about. And he talks about um, Scripture in verse 21 of the first uh, chapter. Talking about Scripture, he says, First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So there he gives us an idea of the nature of Scripture and interpretation. The, the activity of the community is necessary in interpreting the Bible. Every text has to have some way of being interpreted, and the, the Scriptures are the image of the Church. It's the Church that produced the, the Bible, not the university, not people sitting on their own. It's the Church community, and the Church community rules over the, the interpretation of Scripture. So uh, St. Peter is talking about that. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they're inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, in writing the Scripture. One other thing I'd like to call to your attention, uh, at the end of the third chapter, he talks about the letters of St. Paul. I find this rather interesting, that even St. Peter found the letters of St. Paul a little difficult to understand. So if you find it difficult to understand St. Paul, don't feel bad. The, The first pope had that same problem, too. Listen to what he says here in um, towards the end of the of the letter verse 15 so also he says our beloved brother paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him speaking of this as he does in all his letters that is about the second coming of christ there are some things in them hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures so saint peter with all the inspiration that he had and all the grace that he had the association with Christ our Lord, found some of the things that St. Paul said difficult to understand. So, I don't feel too bad sometimes when I find it hard to understand what St. Paul is talking about because St. Peter had the same problem. Now we have, in the Catholic epistles, that is, they directed the whole church, three letters from St. John, the evangelist, the first one is the most important, where he defines God as love. This is uh, ri- probably written around the same time as the Gospel. If the Gospel was written around 90, then this letter was written around the same time. The, the theology, the words, are very similar to the Gospel. He talks about good and evil, light, the light and darkness, about the Word of God, about the power of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, things like that. And... Uh, The theme of this letter is that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God by that very fact possesses eternal life within himself. And as a consequence, he must avoid all sin and errors spread by antichrists. Now, the antichrist that they're talking about here uh, in uh, in a couple of the letters of St. John and also in St. Peter mean all those who are opposed to Christ. Some interpret this to mean that there's going to be a particular one like the the man of sin, the man of lawlessness who appears before the second coming of Christ. But all of those, he kind of lumps them all together. All of those who are opposed to Christ in one way or another are antichrists in the thinking of St. John. He defines God as good and as just and he's famous in the fourth chapter for giving the definition of God as love. And he says, God is love, and uh, those who love are in God, and God is in them because God is love. He also says God is light, God is just, He's infinite goodness, and Christian life is communion with the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son are light and truth and life. So this sounds very much like his gospel according to St. John, and uh, it, it's a, it kind of reflects the same thing. The first, uh, the opening part of the letter of St. John is a little bit like the prologue. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The prologue to St. John's Gospel It's very similar in the opening of the first letter of St. John. Here, however, not only does he stress the divinity of Christ, but he also stresses the humanity of Christ, of Christ in a very strong way. So, He says basically that Christian faith, which is rooted in love, overcomes the world and conquers the evil one who is the master of the world. So since God is love then, in conclusion on this letter, and we are united to Him and He made us for Himself, our purpose for existence is love. So since we're destined for God and God is love, our purpose for existence is love. It's a very beautiful message kind of summarizing the whole gospel in the first letter of St. John. There are two other letters of St. John, the second letter and the third letter. Brief letters. The second letter the second letter of St. John is the shortest book in the New... If you want to call it a book, it's only 13 verses. It's the shortest uh, book in uh, the New Testament. It's the shortest one in the Bible. The third letter to St. John has 15 verses. That's the second uh, shortest. These are two brief really letters, they're not homilies, they're letters. The first one has to do, again, with false teaching. In a very short space of time, he, he uh, comes around to the idea of opposing the heretics and uh, to be faithful to the tradition that's been handed on in the church. And he had, so he encourages his people to, and the leaders of the church, to oppose uh, errors and to oppose heresy because they're responsible for handing on the tradition of the church. In his third letter, which is very brief, also only 15 verses, it's kind of like um, a letter about hospitality. It seems in this community that he's writing to, there's a gentleman there who's not been very hospitable in receiving the envoys that St. Paul has sent. He's turned them out. He's not been hospitable. So the theme of the third letter of St. John, 15 verses, is that all Christians should live the truth of the Christian faith do good to all, and especially offer hospitality to the brethren. So, hospitality is kind of like the one word to summarize the key of the third letter of St. John. And in this letter of 15 verses, seven times uh, he mentions emphasis on the truth of the gospel. This dominates the whole letter, the truth of the gospel. And because of that, we are united, we're one, and Christians should greet one another with uh, a joy and love, and hospitality. the next to last letter in the Bible is by Saint Jude and let uh, see you know this Jude is the kind of the patron of, of difficult cases or hopeless cases. and he's listed as uh, being a brother of James and since James was a cousin of Jesus, this means that Jude also then was a relative of Jesus, the letter, was probably written around the year 70. We don't know exactly when it was written, but it's a very short letter of uh, 25 verses also. The theme of the letter of St. Jude is an exhortation to fidelity to the unchangeable deposit of faith from the apostles in spite of the enticements of false teachers. I would like you to note uh, how much this comes back again and again in these letters from the apostles in the first century of the truth of the gospel and to oppose and to refute and to resist heretics and those who are distorting the the gospel. In one place, uh, it's either St. John or St. Paul says, don't even greet them. Don't have anything to do with these heretics because they're distorting the faith, the true faith of Christ that we have received and this deposit must be handed on from one generation to the other. So he gives examples in the history of the Bible of people who were punished because of their disobedience and their lack of fidelity to the true teaching of the gospel. And uh, so, and rather, uh, St. Jude reminds his audience in strong terms that God punishes those who violate His law. We've seen that over and over again in the story of the Bible. And he offers some examples from the Old Testament, namely Cain what happened to Cain, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Egyptians, Balaam, the false prophet over uh, in, uh, among the Moabites uh, on the other side of the river, and uh, it mentions many others in the book of of uh, these people who violated the law of God and how severely they were punished by God because of that. And then he concludes with a beautiful doxology in the, uh, the <coughs> excuse me the last part last two verses of the letter where he says, Now, this is, is kind of like a beautiful prayer. Now to the one who can keep you from falling and set you in the presence of his glory, jubilant and above reproach, to the only God our Savior, be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. So you can see it has a strong uh, doctrinal and moral uh, uh, sense, this letter, emphasizing the absolute transcendence of God, Almighty God. There's even a hint of the doctrine of the Trinity in this early letter of uh, St. Jude just before the destruction of Jerusalem. Also, he speaks about the angels so that the existence of angels is affirmed. Good angels like St. Michael, the archangel, and also the bad angels who are chained up in hell for all eternity because of their rebellion against God. Those are some of the, the points that are brought out by St. Jude in a very short letter I said only 25 verses. This brings us to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. <laughs> Some people think that the book of Revelation is the most difficult, the most difficult of all the books of the Bible to interpret because of the type of language that's there. It's called the book of Revelation. It's also called, in a Greek word, apocalypse. Now, we're all familiar with both of those words. Those of you who have older Bibles, if you have older Bibles... Uh, it'll be called the Apocalypse. Some of the more recent Bibles the last 20 or 30 years call this last book Revelation. Revelation is the English translation of the word Apocalypse. So they both mean the same thing. Usually now the book is is cited as the book of Revelation rather than the Apocalypse. Because you have a series of visions of St. John the Apostle. The author of the book of Revelation is the same man who wrote the Gospel according to St. John and also the three letters of St. John. The, the language is very similar. The thinking is similar also. But this is what's known as apocalyptic literature, which means uh, that this there, kind of wild imagery is used of things from heaven uh, uh, describing things on earth through symbolic language. There's also a certain amount of prediction of things that are going to happen in the future in using symbolic language. And every, almost everything in this book is symbolic. All of the material things mentioned stand for something else. It's material things that stand for spiritual ideas. Basically, the book describes the war, its war, between God and Satan for the souls of men. So this is the struggle. And this book also, like the book of Daniel and the book of Hebrews and Maccabees, is a a book of encouragement for people who are being persecuted. Because we know that this book was written either in the year 68 or around the year 90, 95, when the Christians in Rome were being terribly persecuted and crucified and put to death and burned to death. And so this is a letter of encouragement But it's written in language that the Roman Gentiles, the pagans, could not understand. If they got a hold of this copy, a copy of this book of Revelation, a Christian book, and they read it, they could never understand what it's all about because of the symbolic language and because of the use of the Old Testament. There are certain books in the Old Testament that have this apocalyptic type of language in them, especially Ezekiel. Think about Ezekiel talking about the four Living animals, the four living creatures before God. They have heads with four sides to them. One side is uh, an image of a lion, the other side is an image of, a, of an eagle, the other is, is of, a, of, a, of a man, and then of an ox. Traditionally, the, these four uh, images we use them for the Gospels. Matthew is, is the man, Mark is the lion. Luke is the ox, and, uh, and uh, St. John is the eagle. So when you see this in Christian art, you see these, these images, they stand, that's what they stand for. They stand for the, the four evangelists. So you have all this symbolism in there. It's, it's, it's about the war between God and Satan for the souls of men. It has to do with salvation. Now, Satan has an awful lot of power, he's very active in the book of Revelation. So Satan and his human agents, who are described as a dragon, the two beasts, the false prophets, they persecute and they kill those who believe in Christ, but Christ is God and is armed with divine power. So they're describing the Roman Empire with with Satan and his human instruments that are putting Christians to death for their faith. This is a way of talking about the Roman Empire. However, Christ conquers and binds Satan in the Book of Revelation, but he permits him to tempt Christians until the second coming of Christ and the end of the world as we now know it. And this is very mysterious to us. And since God has such power over the devil, why does he allow him to tempt people the way he does? There's really no there's no clear answer to that anyway. It's it's part of the of our faith and the mystery. We know that that, that this happens, that there is temptation, but God is in charge of His world. And uh, Satan is allowed to do a certain number of things, but he cannot force anybody's free will to commit sin. They have to freely go along with him if they want to. But in the book of Revelation, from beginning to end, it's certain that Satan will be defeated, God will triumph, and the faithful ones will enter into his kingdom. Now, as I said, almost everything in the book of Revelation is Symbolic. I'm going to give you some of the examples. Right at the beginning, he talks about the seven lampstands with uh, these, this man in brilliant white and gold standing in the middle. The seven lampstands stand for the seven churches that he's going to write these letters to. And the one in the middle is Christ our Lord. It indicates his presence in the church, just right, right at the beginning. He talks about stars, colors, seals, trumpets, the bowls of wrath, colored horses. Uh, there's the, the white horse stands for uh, the goodness. Red horse stands for for war. There's uh, the green horse stands for uh, death. The black one stands for death. The green horse stands for corruption. There, there is a, a way of interpreting a lot of these symbols that are there. Numbers like the number of the uh, uh, of, of the Antichrist is 666. Then you have these animals with ten heads and seven horns, with eyes inside and out. It's just about impossible to imagine these things because their ideas are expressed. And these animals with the, 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 uh, the heads, the ten heads and the seven horns, he's talking about various kingdoms of that time. And, uh, and the seven horns probably refer to the, the seven hills of Rome. Uh, there the are various allusions to things connected with the Greeks and the Rome, Romans and the Assyrians and the Babylonians who have oppressed the uh, Jewish people over the centuries. So as the story progresses in the book of Revelation, you have a series of visions. And many of the statements <coughs> have to do with future events. The apocalypse also means uh, hidden. It's something that's hidden. It's covered over. And so in in terms of these symbols, he's trying to point out to Christians what the meaning of these things are, of things that are to come. It's intriguing to think about the numbers in it because seven among the ancients was considered a perfect number. Six is imperfect. So, an animal that has a name or a person that has a name of 666 is imperfect, whereas one that's 777 is perfect. And you have, in the the book of Revelation, you have seven sets of seven. So, uh, he begins right in the first three chapters with the seven letters to the seven churches. And uh, these letters praise these various churches. He writes to uh, Ephesus and Theotira and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Laodicea and Sardis, each one he, he mentions their, their descriptions of the faith, but there's defects that he has, and so he rebukes them. In each case, uh, he praises them. <coughs> <coughs> excuse me, he praises them for the good aspects of their practice of the faith, but he criticizes them for their defects very uh, explicitly. So. As I said, the main purpose, however, of the main purpose of the book is to encourage Christians to stand fast against the Romans who are crucifying them and putting them to death, to avoid all sin and all paganism, and to be ready to die for the faith. God is presented in the book of Revelation as the absolute Lord of history. These things are happening, and Christians are suffering and dying, but God is the master of history. And uh, even though they, if they suffer in this life, they're going to be rewarded immensely in the next life uh, with e- eternal life in the heavenly Jerusalem. And the book of Revelation ends on a very joyous note, hopeful and triumphant as he describes the new Jerusalem, which is a describing of heaven coming down from, from heaven and uh, all the various dimensions of it. Many of the images in this book are taken from Ezekiel. I mentioned the four creatures and the two olive trees and the, 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 the water flowing from the temple. Uh, also, Joel, speaking about the day of the Lord, he's also used. Daniel, about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and the various images and visions that Daniel had. Those are all borrowed and used by the author, and he has a series here of four uh, punishments of the wicked on earth, where he talks about the seven seals, and each one each one is open, it's a very dramatic, then he has the seven trumpets, the blowing of the seven trumpets, there's seven signs, one after another, there's seven bowls of wrath. Uh, poured out on the oceans and on the streams and on the mountains and the green grass and all of that these are it's a kind of a progression of god punishing his the, the people for their sinfulness and their rejection of god but not all at once he, he gives them an opportunity to uh, repent of their sins finally when you get round to chapters 17 to 20 in the book of revelation you have a description of the fall of babylon Babylon is uh, the code word for Rome. So there's a very graphic description here of the, of the destruction of Rome, which is going to happen to Rome, which does eventually happen to Rome as it's overrun by the barbarians in the 5th century. This is predicted in the book of uh, Revelations, which was written around the year 90 AD, and within 400 years, this is what actually happened to Rome of uh, being destroyed. The final two. Chapters are this description of the heavenly Jerusalem. As I said, coming down from heaven, it's gold and crystal and has all kinds of jewels and so forth. It mentions that, that, that the Lord's presence gives light uh, in, this, in this new kingdom. There's no need for uh, sun and moon and stars and things like that because the Lord is the light of, uh, of the new Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a magnificent book of prophecy, but one has to be careful in interpreting it in applying it to political situations, let's say at the present time, as some Christians tend to do, they were some Christians uh, will see uh, in the the uh, the ten heads that has in the past has been like the the common market in Europe and things like that. There's no real justification for that, but there's a there's great sense of the majesty and transcendence of God. He describes the four living creatures as falling down in adoration of the Lord, which is the attitude that we should have when he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou didst create all things, and by thy will they existed and they were created.